Welcome to an HBO podcast from the HBO Late Night series, Real Time with Bill Maher. I think I know why you're excited. The midterm elections are upon us. They are 11 days away. I guess I was wrong. Not excited about that, but they are. (laughs) Well, I don't blame you for being a little apathetic. I mean, wow, what an election this is. The Republicans are putting up a slate of election deniers and oafs and crackpots and crooks. And and the Democrats uh, have a guy who recently died of a stroke. So... No, uh, it's, <laughs> no, not die. We're, we're not making fun. But if you saw that debate in Pennsylvania, the Dr. Oz against John Fetterman, uh, he did recently have a stroke, uh, Fetterman, and he is still a little shaky. Uh, that debate, ooh, uh, neurologists call that condition Herschel Walker. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's some buttes in this election. Oh, Herschel Walker, another woman. I cannot keep up with this guy. Another woman came forward to say that he paid for an abortion. This guy has provided more abortions than Planned Parenthood. (laughs) (laughs) One of the popular costumes now for kids in Georgia is that the kids go out with a ghost costume and a sign that says, Herschel paid for this. But that, <laughs> well, that was, or hopefully still is, a big issue in the election. Abortion? Nothing. This crowd is nothing gets this crowd. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> out there in America, I'm telling you, it's a big issue. It came up in the uh, Fetterman debate. Dr. Oz said about abortion, it should be uh, something that's decided between a doctor, a woman, and local political leaders. <laughs> well, this is going to be new for women. Uh, yeah, the mayor's office. Yeah, listen, uh, I missed my period. Um, <laughs> yes, I'll hold. <laughs> but the big news in uh, the uh, tech world, Elon Musk has now taken over Twitter. <laughs> and probably will put Trump back on it. Uh, Trump said uh, yesterday, he said, Twitter now, he says, is insane hands. But that's also what he said when Kanye bought a school. Uh, so... Oh, Kanye. Kanye is in hot water, boy. He has lost his deals now with Adidas, Balenciaga, Gap, Foot Locker, and yesterday, his mic dropped him. Wow. He's... <laughs> He's, he's seen his net worth plummet to a fraction of what it was. Which, uh, the bright side, he doesn't have to worry about, uh, you know, all those gold diggers. <laughs> and he... <laughs> 
He does have a school, the Donda Academy. Uh, and if you have a child enrolled there, A, be, be aware it may have closed, and B, <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> this is... It's a very different kind of school. It, it's open only on Jewish holidays. <laughs> And their motto is, a mind is a terrible thing. (laughs) And uh, finally, I thought this was interesting. I should bring to your attention this week, especially with all the tech news. The Pope uh, made news. He came out, he said he is urging priests and nuns to delete all the porn off their phones. I didn't... I didn't know they even had phones or porn on them, and the priest said, not a problem, just leave us grinder. Okay, we've got a great show. We have Jillian Ted, Yuval Noah Ferrari. Uh, but first up, you all know this guy. He is the award-winning filmmaker and author whose new book, Cinema Speculation, is out on November 1st. One of our great cinemasts, Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> I've said these before, but it is amazing when a director is treated like a star. Mm-hmm. The director is traditionally the person behind the camera. People what? don't even know them. You are a star. Well, not to be too uh, uh, inside here, but actually I hadn't noticed that the audience was uh, kind of staggered like this. It makes it feel like a nightclub it, when you look out. It has a nightclub kind of feel from this, on stage. This is a legacy of what happened during COVID when yeah, we yeah. had to socially distance so we couldn't have as many people. And the audience got much better because mm-hmm. we turned out we just got rid of the groaners. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> really? I believe it. No, I believe no, it. It's yeah, true. Exactly, yeah. So we kept it. But uh, before we lose all our time here, because you and I can get to talking... Yeah. Uh, let's get to the book, because I feel like that you were destined to write this book. Oh, thank you. Know, you. I think you... You know, one of the reasons why you're a great filmmaker is because you're a great student of film. I mean, mm-hmm. you more than anybody, we've always known that about you. You just love it. Mm-hmm. And the book is so funny because, you know, you really were raised by movies. I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I didn't even realize this about you, that you went when you were seven years old. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. To a very adult movies. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, you know, it's talked about in the book at some point... I realized that I was seeing movies... Again, we're talking about the 70s. So we're talking about, you know, like starting from 68 or whatever. Um, So the explosion of what they called New Hollywood. Well, that's me getting used to going to the movies. You know, as that's... The New Hollywood are the movies to me. And uh, at some point I did notice that I I was seeing more... I was seeing different movies than the other kids were allowed to see. (laughs) And you know, it was like also what? interesting. Mash was a, and well, I saw. Well, I say, yeah, I saw. I saw Mash three times in 1970. I thought Mash was was my favorite movie that year. Uh, um, but Mash and The French Connection and The Godfather, it, like a couple very of times. Adult movies. It, Deliverance and The Wild Bunch. Wow. You know. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, but no, but okay, but just to use this as an example, like okay, so okay, so there's the male sodomy rape scene in Deliverance. All right. So now oh, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm watching Deliverance. As a kid, and he ain't like, gotten a hair in his mouth. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I, I'm seeing it at 73, so I'm about nine, I think. Right. Okay, and, and uh, so I'm watching Deliverance now. 
Do I know he's sticking his dick up Ned Beatty's ass? No, I don't know that. All right. Uh, did I know he was being sodomized in a, 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 a sodomized rape? No, I didn't know what sodomy or what rape was at that time. I knew he was being humiliated. And he was being humiliated. I knew he was being subjugated, even though I didn't know what that word meant, because every boy on the playground has been humiliated to some degree. Not like that. Not like that. <laughs> but we understand the dynamic. Right. Okay. You know, because we didn't, I didn't right. understand the sexual part. No, I did see him be humiliated right. in the group. I'm not sure what the lesson is. <laughs> well, I guess the less I guess the lesson is is like especially when you take kids to see adults, you know, there's going to be some stuff that goes over right. their head and some stuff you want to go over their head. But there was a whole lot of stuff that even though I might not technically have known exactly right. what the characters were talking about, I got the gist of well, it. And I got the gist by how the audience responded, the audience of adults. Whatever it was, I don't care. It made you who you are. <laughs> and it made what, what I took away is that, I mean, I feel like the, the epiphany lesson is so clear in that book. And yeah. it comes in the very first chapter when you talk about going to a Jim Brown movie. Now, yeah, yeah. I don't know if people of a certain age don't know who Jim Brown is, but Jim Brown was the original athlete turned star. Yeah. Before that, Mickey Mantle never became a movie star. I mean, right, yeah. Well, it was always Jim, a joke when they put a guy like Right. That. And then it became much more of a common thing. We yeah. see, okay. Jim Brown, and he was, I mean, I wanted to be Jim Brown, too. When he yeah. was in 100 Rifles with yeah, yeah, Raquel uh-huh. Welch, and she's, oh, there it is. Oh, oh, that's the, oh, look at that. That's the poster. Oh, yeah. Where she's hugging him from behind like uh-huh. that, and they both have a look on their face no, like, like, yeah, we just did it, yeah. and we did it well. No, they're sexy in that movie. Oh, too. and he's very sexy. Okay, yeah. so you saw a Jim Brown movie. Yeah. When you were, how old were you? Probably, like, I was 72, so I, uh, I'm like a, um, yeah. a, a eight. Eight years old. Yeah. You're in this all-black theater, mm-hmm. okay? And it's a double feature. When they had double features. Yeah. And the first movie is is kind of a messagey movie. Yeah, it's called The Bus Is Coming. <laughs> but the Bus Is Coming. And the, dot, dot, dot. The crowd <laughs> hated it. Hated it. Right. They're Hated. literally yelling out, suck yeah. my dick. Yeah, right. You, you, well, it was, right. Yeah, okay, well, it was the, you know... Uh, I was a fairly sophisticated kid, so I've seen the adults kind of, you know, uh, have different responses, you know, uh, um, uh, to movies before. And I'd even seen an, an audience turn against, an adult audience turn against the movie. But I'd never seen the level of contempt that this black audience felt towards <laughs> the bus is coming. I mean, they just... Which is perce- a black movie. Yes. Right? They just proceeded to just yell insults at the characters on screen. From, from the... Because, uh, like, yeah, it was, it, that's not the movie we came to see, so we only walked in. So, uh, so we had 45 minutes to go. So for the whole 45 minutes, they just yelled shit at the people on screen. And the first time I ever heard the expression, suck my dick! All right. was like some guy uh, right. in the audience yelling at to somebody in the, on, on screen. And at first, I'm a little <laughs> trepidatious so, about it all. Ain't uh, a rape, suck my dick. <laughs> this is quite an education yeah. you're getting. Well, I'm a little trepidatious, but all of a certain point, they were just so funny. I just start, like, right. uncontrollably giggling. And then, like, you know, and, you know, and the, the guy who's taking me to see it is this football player who's dating my mom. So he's trying to get in good with me. And he takes me into an all-black theater, and he sees me, like, being comfortable. He's like, hey, you a cool kid, cute, you know? And he's, like, patting me with his huge hand. And, and uh, 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 and so, uh, so... 
I yell out something at the screen, kind of look at him to make sure it's okay. He's like, ha, ha, ha. You know, he's like happy that I'm having a good time. And so I suck my dick. <laughs> a character's good. But actually the funniest one, suck my dick definitely had the benefit of being memorable. All right. Uh, but the funniest one is at the end of the movie, the bus, which I think was supposed to be a metaphor, this 12-year-old kid's waiting for the bus the whole film. All right. Uh, uh, at the end, the bus finally shows up. And then the kid runs down the street screaming the title of the movie. The bus is coming, the bus is coming, the bus is coming. And somebody in the theater just says, Yeah, well, get on it and go fuck yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to say, if you're promoting this uh, book on the Today Show, don't tell these stories. Okay, I will. It's just not going to work the same. but, uh, too but, hip for the house. But then the Jim Brown movie comes on, mm-hmm. which is a kick-ass action movie, yeah. I'm sure, where he's cool, and yeah. and the crowd loves it. And you say you have never been the same. Yeah, well, and then your like, whole career, yeah. you've been trying to recreate that experience from 1972. It was yeah. a magnificent experience, especially being the you know uh, the son of a, of a single mother, you know, and then... And even at that point, uh, she was living with two of her best friends. So it's like I'm in a house with three young women. Uh, so being taken by a football player, like a Rams player, <laughs> to a Jim Brown movie uh, in 1972 on a Saturday night in an all-black theater, except for me, uh, that was probably the most masculine male experience I had ever had in my life. I was like, fuck going camping. This is it. Yeah, this is... <laughs> This is way better than fucking fishing. All right, uh, this is this is cool. I mean, what? But, I... You know, but 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 you know, but there is an aspect. I do say that it's like you know, when, either as a movie consumer going to movies and being part of an audience, or creating movies for an audience. That that goal of a Jim Brown movie in 1972 on a Saturday night is always what I'm trying well, to achieve. To me, it also read like it's a, it's important to make. I love a meaningful movie. I can't stand yeah. one that isn't. Yeah. Usually, sometimes something can be just silly and I can enjoy it, but mostly I want to get into something. Yeah. But don't forget, we're entertainers. Absolutely. That, to me, was the lesson there. The, th- yeah. the first one just wasn't entertaining, and yeah. if you don't entertain people, it doesn't right. matter how good the message is, then <laughs> yeah, you're just right. preaching and we're fucking bored. Absolutely. And the second one, well, it's entertaining, and you certainly... If nothing else, have, and you've been much else, have been entertained. <laughs> if nothing else. Very entertaining. <laughs> no, but certainly. And... Thank you, a bunch of satisfied customers out there. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I just want to ask, finally, now that we see so many movies in the home, and mm-hmm. you have these experiences that were so transformative of you when you went to a theater. Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing you're like a lot of the directors who are not digging this... this new way we absorb movies where we can turn it off in two minutes. Yeah, if we're not no, hooked, yeah. you've got to give a director time to, to put the arrow back before he fires the shot. You know, it was, it, it was even to such a degree... You know, I haven't liked a whole lot of the... I mean, I'm not, that's not a blanket statement. I haven't seen that much. All right? But I haven't liked a lot of the new stuff that's come out in the last couple of years. But again, I haven't seen that much, so it doesn't mean anything. Um, but, like, for instance, I had a film that I was kind of interested in seeing, and I got the digital thing for it, and so I invited about, like, six people to come over and watch it with me. And so, uh, so uh, it was, like, six of us sitting in a really cool little home theater, and we had it on screen, and it looked pretty decent. Uh, now, I ended up not liking the movie, all right? Uh, but that first 30 minutes 
having six other people in the room and we're all watching it, and it's not like I, it's a good movie that I like, and now I'm introducing it to you. That that experience I'm used to. But no, we were all like, we were an open book. It was right. a, you know. And, but I, I felt their eyeballs. I felt when people laughed. I also started feeling when they started losing uh, started losing the thread in the movie. But I ended up, even though I didn't care for the movie, I ended up having a really good time. Communal. Because we were part of an audience. You were a communal experience. Yeah. All right. Keep making movies. I know we go through this every time we see each other. Don't, oh, don't quit. You keep talking. Don't quit. All right, I'll see you later. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, Brown. It's a great book, too. All right, let's meet our panel. She is the chair of the editorial board and U- a U.S. editor-at-large of the Financial Times and author of Anthrovision, A New Way to See in Business and Life. Jillian Tett is back with us. And he is the historian and best-selling author of Sapiens. I've read it twice. His new book for kids is called Unstoppable Us, How Humans Took Over the World. Yuval Harari is with us. Great to have you here. Good to be here. Well, I have two people here now who are really not Americans, who I call the lucky ones, (laughs) because, you know, we are uh, about to have an election here in this country. Same here. In Israel? I'm not sure who is luckier. Well, you have even more elections than we do. I'm not sure being from Britain is great these days either. Okay, but I I think I can win this contest. (laughs) Because we, we are at a place here where the Republicans are about to elect a slate of almost all election deniers. That's an amazing fact, considering that January 6th was less than two years ago. And at that time, even the Republicans, almost all of them, condemned what Trump did. Now, some of them voted for it in Congress, but there was a lot of... Just in that time, we've seen, somehow, Trump and his cohorts change the entire Republican Party to people who don't believe that Biden legitimately was elected president. And the January 6th hearings, we had them all year. There were nine of them. They laid out all the facts meticulously by Republicans. Turned out, didn't change anybody's mind. What I'm asking about is, have our brains been rewired, (laughs) mostly by technology, to where we really can't absorb information anymore? And nobody... I could sit here tonight and say, the election is in 11 days. You've got to get out there and vote. And yes, I will say that. It won't change anybody's minds. It won't change anything. People are going to do what they've already decided they're going to do and what they all see on their own phones based on their own algorithms. Well, I'm going to leave it to you, Val, to give the um, academic aspect of this. But if you look at some of the polling data recently, there's two things that's amazing. Reuters' Ipsos poll came out and did a poll about three weeks ago which shows that 40% of American voters feared violence and intimidation around voting in the midterms. 40%. That was even before we had um, the Pelosi attack yesterday. And the other thing is that if you look at what's happened in terms of attitudes between the two parties to the other party, 72% of Republicans and something similar around Democrats now think the other people in the other party, not the party, but the people in the other party are dishonest, that they are essentially lacking in morals, they're bad people. And that is twice the proportion of six years ago. So we've really gone into a kind of tribalism, which is getting hardwired into the way that people are seeing politics. And this cell phone technology is adding to it. 
I mean, you've looked at this in your book, Sapiens, haven't you, in the future books? Yeah, and I think what we can all agree on is that something is broken in the information system. We have the best information technology in history, and yet people can no longer hold the conversation, can no longer agree on the most basic facts, like who won the last elections. So something is definitely broken in the information system. We are not sure what it is. It's not necessarily the phones themselves. But, you know, people should well, maybe go on an information diet. That we are so <laughs> careful... But they're not going to. I mean, isn't that what you call dataism? Mm-hmm. When we can't resist. I, I, think that's, I think that's actually been the case throughout history with technology. Humans cannot resist technology. You talk in Sapiens about just farming, which I would call the first technology, and you say maybe humans would have been much happier remaining nomadic, you know, and I won't go through all the reasons why you say that, and Mm -hmm. I certainly don't want to be foraging for food tonight. Uh, (laughs) It is Friday. But, I mean, or take something more recent like the cotton gin. We were ready to give up slavery in this country, and a machine came along that made it much more profitable, and they went, let's go back to slavery. I I just think humans cannot resist when the technology comes along, and the phone is just the most recent example of that and the most virulent because I do think it is rewiring brains. I don't know if it's the technology itself, but the fact that so many people... I cannot imagine reading a book. And these are not... They're not stupid. Well, don't tell him that. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is rewiring our brains. Just talking here and people listening to us, the brain is constantly changing. Hmm. So, yes, we have to be very, very careful about what we say, especially in public, Like what we say here, the words are like seeds that go into the brains of millions of people, maybe. So we should be careful about what seeds we are sowing. If we sow seeds of hatred, it will bring violence. But also people need to be careful about what they take in. The same way they're very careful about food, that you have the diets and you have all these warnings on food, like you have the the list of this is 40% fat and 20% sugar. We need this also like on a YouTube video, like this is 40% greed, 20% hate, if you want now to thank it. And one very important thing about technology, it's very dangerous to think that technology is like unstoppable, that it's, it's not up to us. It's always up to us. You can always make changes about how... We, we can't roll the, the clock back and give it up. Yeah, but but in, in the 20th century, you could use the technology of electricity and radio and television to build uh, the Soviet Union, a totalitarian dictatorship. Or you could use the same technology to build a liberal democracy. It's the same in the 21st century. But I, I actually think this actually... <laughs> and I'm clearly addicted. I brought it on set. But, you know, these are addictive, OK, yes. this technology. It's designed to be addictive, deliberately designed. But it also does something else much more subtle that really plays into what you're talking about in terms of polarisation, which is that this has created what I call Gen P, Gen Playlist. And by that I mean that when we were growing up, If you wanted to listen to music, you had to accept somebody else's preset package. So like a vinyl record, or you switched on the radio, and someone else decided what was playing when. Today, nobody under the age of 30 would accept that. Everyone wants playlists. It's like listening to music when you want, how you want. It's the ultimate customization. Pick a mix culture. And we're extrapolating that onto consumer culture, 
our coffee choices. I mean, you go to Starbucks, you want to order coffee, you've got like 20 choices. You have it with media, you listen, to, you basically read what you want, you have your friends, you have your work, you might go into work if you feel like it, not if you don't feel like it. Um, that's played into the whole working from home thing. But also it plays into our politics because we all think we live in our version of the matrix where we can pick issues whenever we want and we can basically just focus on one thing at a time and then change our minds. You know, the idea of having old-fashioned things called parties is just so 20th century. It's like literally a vinyl record for politics. And I think that's playing into the sense of, you know, tribalism, the sense of, you know, capricious, unpredictable bursts of energy that then die down again. It means that politics and is becoming... And again, you, I mean, you point out all these things we could do, but people don't. Yes, the labels on food say what the shit is in it, and then people eat it. Not all of it's them. It's not like yeah. they look at, oh, it has fat and sugar, and they go, I can't eat this. That's what they pull off the shelf. Mm -hmm. So, what, and, you know, people could ignore the phone. They don't. They, they could choose to go on a, a media diet, but they're, they're not going to. We saw in the paper this week only something like 26 of 193 countries who signed on to do things about the environment have done anything. We can't resist that either. The convenience that is brought to us by things that pollute... Is, I've said this to the audience many times, like, if you could tomorrow give up the TV remote and have it cure global warming, would you do it? <laughs> Don't it. Well, it's easy to clap. It's not just, of course, the responsibility of individuals. This is why we have governments. This is why we have institutions. This is why we have regulations to help us with the things that, yes, it's very difficult to do it individually, um, partly because it was designed to be difficult. You know, you have some of the smartest people in the world uh, are basically hacking our own weaknesses and using it against us. Behind this device, you know, some of the well, smartest people in the world, they learned how to use this in order to get this, into our I've brain. got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there are some people very upset today that uh, Elon Musk took over Twitter and brought his sync with him. Um, exactly. I happen to be an Elon Musk fan, but what do you think about that? Is that a good idea that a billionaire take over Twitter because billionaires certainly own every other media outlet? <laughs> I mean, he's now officially a media baron. Um, personally, I have a lot of admiration for a lot of the innovation that Elon Musk has brought to the world. He's done some incredible things. The problem with him is that he's becoming increasingly godlike in the way he looks at problems right now and assumes that he can solve them. And he is capricious and he's unelected. And when I look at what he's done in Ukraine with something like Starlink, which mm. is an incredible technology, you know, he... Well, explain what he's done with well, Starlink. Well, Starlink basically is this little terminal that gives people internet on the move without having to have these cell towers which get hit by missiles very easily. So in the early weeks of the Ukrainian war, the Russian invasion, he spread Starlinks across the country. He donated some. Others were bought by... Ukrainians, and they basically meant that the soldiers and civilians had internet throughout the war, which was amazing. I mean, incredible. So that was Thank a good you, thing. Elon. That was good. And Tesla, that was a good thing. Tesla was good. And, and relandable rockets, good thing. But then... Bad guy. Then, wait for it, then, yeah, in the well, last man, month <laughs> or two, he began to basically say, first of all, it wasn't clear who's was going to pay for them, and then he began to switch them off in some of the really important areas. But they're on. They're no, he didn't do that. Uh, actually, I've been in touch with the Ukrainians just recently, and yes, in areas, the, the 
Starlinks were switched off, and it's still unclear what's going to happen. That's not what I read. I read that he talked about it a little bit, and then there were some What he tweeted is not always what he actually does. Right. <laughs> Shock horror. Well, he, well like, like a lot of people, especially of the younger generations, they just tweet whatever comes into their mind. I don't get that. But that's, that's how people are. They're much more transparent than they used to be. They, the privacy is almost something to be avoided. Well, the issue is he treats everything like a hackathon, like he's hacking and testing and constantly okay, testing but, ideas. And that's a great way to hack a computer code. It's not so great to try and do foreign policy. But it, when we found... I, I, I would just say this about Elon Musk. First of all, Twitter... I, well, we'll get into that. Do we really want to piss off the geniuses? I mean, con- considering that with this week we learned once again that we're not going to solve the environment ourselves. We're not going to do it by the model we thought we could do it by, which is everybody needs to conserve more and not just do whatever you want because that pollutes. That's not working. That failed. It looks like we're going to have to have a technological response to this. I don't know if Elon Musk is the guy we want to piss off. I'm like, I want to identified the people who might have a shot but you, at I, fixing I, this with technology. So you're you know? scared of him? What? Are you scared of Elon Musk? Or? I'm not scared of him, no. <laughs> you sound like you're scared of him. I'm, I'm not scared of him. I but like the thing him. is, this is not a technological problem. I mean, if you have a technological problem, what yes, you need Global a tech warming? genius. No, I'm talking about taking over Twitter, for instance. Oh, okay. That this is a problem of politics, of sociology of human psychology. I'm not sure that he's necessarily the best one to, to address it. I mean, his view of Twitter, he often says it, it's like the town square, that we need to protect the free speech there. But Twitter is not the town square. I mean, Tristan Harris recently said that Twitter is actually the town's gladiator arena, not the, not the uh, town <laughs> square. And it does, town square rewards um, uh, a moderate talk rational talk, discussion that tries to lead to consensus. And Twitter is more like a gladiator arena that rewards extremism, that rewards rage. And, you know, you don't even fight there against other humans. Like in ancient Rome, you fight against these big beasts, the bots. But but I I agree, there is a lot of rage out there, and it's terrible. But But there's a lot of stuff that annoys us that you just can't wish away or ban but because it makes it fixes. worse. There are easy fixes. For instance, you know, a bot tweets about 800 times an hour. A human being... But that's what twi- he wants to get rid of on Twitter. Okay, so first thing, I mean, if he, first thing he does, first day he comes to the office, instead of bringing a sink, is, okay, let's get rid of all the bots, and if this is difficult engineering problem, then let's limit but that was the his number ma- of That tweets. was his main reason for dragging his feet on this deal. I want to get rid of the bots. So If he does that, that's a wonderful thing. Right. Okay, well, he's doing that. I... Oh, and another thing is just limit the number of tweets that you can make, sure. say, five an hour. Yeah. And that immediately puts a lead on all these bots. But what I would say is that when you, when you tell people that they can't be heard, they don't go away. Donald Trump has been off Twitter. He didn't go away. He's going to absolutely get the Republican nomination next time. And his people, they didn't go away either. They didn't self-deport because he wasn't on Twitter. And you see, there was an attack at a drag queen story hour at a Portland pub. I don't know why people are bringing their children to a pub, but okay. (laughs) Uh, But then Nancy Pelosi, as you mentioned, somebody attacked her, thinking she was home. She was not. Her husband got attacked in his home. You know, this is this cold civil war that we're in, that we've been hearing about. This is civil war. It's not going to be like the last civil war. It's going to be this kind of stuff. 
And I think when you, when you shut off that valve of letting people talk, I think that stuff only gets worse. But the thing no, is not just... No, I agree. Yeah, I agree. People need not just to talk, but also to listen. Right. So we've created this wonderful technology that it is good, that it allows everybody to talk and, and, and voice their opinions, which we didn't have like 50 years ago. Right. But we now need to work on listening well, and not just talking. One of the people... Which is not more difficult. One of the people I love to listen to on Twitter is Marjorie Taylor Greene. I don't know if you know Marjorie <laughs> Taylor Greene, but she's really having a moment. Uh, Trump is considering her as a running mate in 2024. Oh, there she is, yes. And she's also gotten a lot of incredible press. And when the Republicans take over Congress in 11 days, she's going to be very important there. So we thought today would be a good time to do 24 things you don't know about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, would you like to hear them? I'm sure you would. Uh, for example, I've never been in a store without demanding to see the manager. <laughs> I have three kids, two in high school and one who was murdered by Hillary Clinton. <laughs> My greatest fears are snakes, spiders, and Jews. <laughs> oh, we let a few of those groaners back in. Shit. <laughs> to keep things sexy in a relationship, I sometimes open the door completely unarmed. <laughs> I was once kicked off Truth Social for not comparing something to Nazis. <laughs> My mom drank while she was pregnant with me, and even more after she met me. <laughs> I will work with the Republicans who dislike me because there's no I in team, I think. Uh, since classrooms are full of groomers, I'm trailer-schooling my kids. <laughs> I would have liked Schindler's List if it was shorter. Not the movie, <laughs> the list of Jews he saved. <laughs> if I could meet anyone living or dead, I'd prefer living, because if I was dead, what's the point? <laughs> um... So, did I cut you off before you were about to say something to our last discussion? I'm sorry. I I'm just going to add in one more thing, which is basically part of the problem with Twitter is not just a question of, you know, people not listening. It's that you get sucked into these echo chambers, these mm. tunnels, and there are things that they can right. do with the algorithms to actually force people to try and collide more with the different tribe shock. Um, and that's a lot of the problem right now. People get literally live in alternative universes. Right. Mm. Okay, so like the, the way, Marjorie Taylor Greene universe. The way, uh, <laughs> the way the Democrats apparently think they're going to save democracy is through TikTok. I saw this week. <laughs> Joe Biden had uh, eight TikTokers to the White House with a combined following of 67 million hmm. followers, uh, and uh, he talked to them. And one of them uh, said, "A lot of the creators, they call themselves creators. I love that." <laughs> influencers, you know, you know, uh, talked about how they didn't get a lot of civics education in school. They were excited to learn about the structure of government. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the problem. You know, if we were starting at, okay, here's how to register to vote, but we're starting at 
This is what government is. <laughs> I mean, we're so stupid in this country. Another one of the kids, uh, Nia Sue, she's, uh, uh, she has 8.3 million followers. Um, when she talked about the midterms, they thought she was talking about the midterms at her college. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I just think when you're trying to get the young people to vote, you've already lost the election. Uh, I just don't think, I don't, you know, young people in this, do they, do they, they vote in Israel, the young people? Yes. Yeah, because they they're do. also pressed into military service and they're just more, much more I don't know, You look what's happening now in Iran with the young people uh, rising up against one of the most oppressive regimes yeah. in the world. Sure. And I think we, we should give some respect to yeah. the young people too. Well, traditionally, 15% of them vote in the, in the midterm election. 15% under 30. So I respect them 15%. I mean, yeah, I mean <laughs> I that sounds about right to me. Like, for, like three out of 20 have a brain in their head. And the other, I mean, they have brains. It's, it, I mean, it's we have let them down. I mean, we don't teach anything anymore. But I think it's also a lot of them think that tweeting is politics. They think if they're tweeting, they're engaging in politics, they're expressing their views, they're not actually getting to the, to the ballot box. And the problem, again, with the issue about civics classes is back to this idea of Gen P, that if you live in your own world, on cyberspace, with your phone, you think you can literally fashion it around you as you want, and the idea of boring government full of grown-ups and adults telling you how to live and imposing a structure on you just is so 20th century. Right. And, and that's a problem. Right. I mean, every generation has to find a way to say to the people who gave them life and sacrificed their entire lives for them, fuck you. <laughs> right? Yeah. And just do the opposite. You know, if you listen to jazz, I listen to rock. If you like your coffee hot, I like it cold. I'll wear my pants, my underwear, over my pants if it means I'm not like you. But the thing is that having military service in Israel is really interesting because I suspect it's one of the things that probably creates a sense of common identity and brings people together, that you take young people and force them all to go and literally live together for a year. Um, rather than living in separate little tribal groups. In, in I wouldn't go for the army as the best way to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it has its downsides. Of course. But, but it, it's definitely true, you know. I would like to see young people vote far more, especially because, at least in the U.S., it could be their last chance. I mean, the next presidential elections in, in the right. U.S. could be the last Absolutely. democratic elections yes. in U.S. history. And uh, it's not a high chance, but there is some chance that th this will be, the, will be the case. And what people often don't understand about democracy is that democracy is not elections. That elections are an important part of, of a democracy, but it can turn into a ritual. They have elections in Iran. They have elections in Russia. It's not about the election. It's about understanding a very complex system. You know, understanding dictatorship is easy. There is this one guy... He dictates everything. That's the only thing you need to know. In democracy, it's so complicated. It's all these checks and balances. It's all these basically self-correction mechanisms. Right. The whole thing about democracy is the ability to say, we made a mistake, let's try something else. You don't have it... Well, we, I mean, and we have a system that... I mean, 
You two in your countries have parliamentary systems, which mm -hmm. make that change. I mean, you just elected a new yeah. prime minister. I would well, not hold up the UK as a great shining example of how to do things right now. Um, you know, you heard of Liz Trust. But, but you um, don't like the new prime minister? Yeah, actually, I do. I think he's probably... I mean, shouldn't we celebrate that more? I mean, this is kind yeah. of their Obama moment. If people don't know... What? Well, they've, it is to a degree. They've I mean, never had anyone who wasn't white. Mm -hmm. Now they have someone from Indian descent. I mean, it was, it was only... Yeah. Thank you, three people. <laughs> um, you know... They're pre-Halloween exhausted, this audience. British politics... We're saving it for, for the party tomorrow night. Yeah. Uh, Here's the thing about what's happened in Britain. I mean, you know, British politics used to be really boring, and then we became like Italy in mm. terms of our political swings, but without the good food and sunshine, um, sadly. Um, so we've had a lot of turbulence. Um, we've now got Rishi Sunak, who is, as you say, Indian. Um, of Indian heritage. In, I mean... Indian heritage. What's interesting, though, is that if you look at the debates around him, the controversies, it's got nothing to do with the colour of his skin in the UK. Right. It's about the fact he's rich. And there's a lot of voters who don't like that in the UK. And it's kind of interesting. You know, race and ethnicity plays out differently in London from elsewhere and the UK. And there were elsewhere. people in this country who said there was a backlash, and there wasn't. Nah. It's just, I feel like sometimes people in this country, they're so into victimhood mm -hmm. that when something of a progressive victory happens, they feel deprived. <laughs> they feel deprived of having something to bitch about. I think the other thing... The other thing is that... In the UK, race, ethnicity, colour of your skin is not viewed so much as being in boxes, but it's more a spectrum because there's been so much intermarriage. Um, you know, I, I've lived in London for years and I live in New York. My own kids are mixed race. And um, people in London used to joke that everyone in London is coffee-coloured, but on a spectrum from double espresso to flat white. <laughs> and because, you know, people are mixed up. And so it's not seen as being quite so rigidly in boxes. And that's a good thing. Yeah. So... Um... Let me go back to the environment for a second, because your book, a lot of the stuff that I found so fascinating was about how what you call the cognitive revolution, when mm -hmm. people, around 70,000 B.C., learned to cooperate. Mm -hmm. And this is what you say, and I think you're completely right, separates this from the animals, is mm -hmm. that we can have an idea, and it's usually a myth, it can be a lie, like religion, but, you know, if a million... If a million people believe that, you know, Jesus is God and the wrong people have taken over Jerusalem, you can get a million people to march on Jerusalem like they did in the Crusades. And yes. there's a million examples of this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so cooperation. We would need that to solve this environmental problem. Why doesn't it work there? Um, I think we don't have a good story. Uh, cooperation is ultimately, as you said, it's based on a story that everybody not just accepts and believes, but makes you enthusiastic about it, willing to make sacrifices. And it really goes back again, tens of thousands of years to the Stone Age. We did not, we were not adapted by evolution to worry about our environment on, uh, on the atmosphere, on, all, on, on global climate, but, be, but because as Stone Age people, uh, you don't have, a, have any influence on that. So you are programmed by evolution to worry a lot about the tribe on the other side of the hill, to worry a lot about people in your tribe who might be plotting against you, uh, but not about the effects of your campfire on what's going to happen to the, to the environment. 
And so, and we are still programmed to worry about these things. It's much more easy to press the emotional buttons of people when you tell them about the other tribe or about the traitors in our tribe than when you tell them about uh, global warming. So that doesn't sound very optimistic <laughs> for solving this other than, like I say, with some sort of technological saving. Because I, I don't see people cooperating on but this. Even and, for and they've the... been warning us for like 25 years now that doomsday is coming. Mm-hmm. But even for technology, for technology to save us, we need to invest the money in the right places. You know, the important thing to realize about the problem of climate change, that it is completely within human power to solve it. We are not these helpless victims. We can do that. We have the scientific knowledge. We have the economic resources. Sure. It's estimated that we need something like to invest 2% or 3% of our global budget as humanity in developing the right technologies and infrastructure to prevent catastrophic climate change. Now, 2% of the global budget is a lot of money, but it's completely feasible. This is why we have politicians for. Their job is to shift 2% of resources from here to there. They do it all the time. But they don't. <laughs> they are always at this impasse. This is what we could do, but they don't. I mean, one thing I love about your book is you never forget the animals. You never forget talking about how this march of civilization that we've been on, the biggest victims, have been the animals. Everywhere we go, humans, homo sapiens, are ecological serial killers. Yeah. And we're not stopping that either. The bad things that we have been doing from the beginning don't seem to be retreating. I'm not quite so depressed because, actually, there is a younger generation coming out that cares a lot about climate change. Um, and right now in America, to <laughs> yeah, go they back care to... about it, but they're doing... The, they say they blame it on this generation, but then it's like, oh, uh, you're not using cars? <laughs> right, you're only traveling in Greta's sailboat. You know, <laughs> they care about it. They tweet about it. They don't do anything different. But I, I think, again, very important is that we don't lay the responsibility on the younger generation, say, on the, on the, on the teenagers. This is not their job. I mean, this is our jobs as as adults to solve it. When they are 40, 50, then it will be... If they want to influence, if they want to help, by all means, they should be heard, they should be given the the platform. But it's very dangerous when people feel that, well, we can't solve it, the kids will solve it. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) It's not their responsibility to solve it. True that. All right, thank you, guys. Time for new rules. bear attacks a human, don't tell me at the end of that story that the cops are searching for the bear. (laughs) What are they going to do? Put in a lineup? (laughs) The bear attacked a hunter in the woods where the bear lives. It's called Stand Your Ground, bitches. (laughs) New rule, all political debates must now come with a skip intro button. We know who you are. You've been bombarding every media platform we have for the last six months. Plus, your intro is never about you. It's, my dad worked in these mines, my mom cleaned houses, my parents came here with nothing. Great, let's vote for your fucking parents. (laughs) Neural, just because the technology exists to take this extreme close-up photo of an ant doesn't mean you should. (laughs) 
Look at this thing. It's like a murder hornet crossed with James Corden after the eggs come out wrong. <laughs> if this is what's crawling around in my yard, screw the Orkin man. My new exterminator is Sigourney Weaver. New rule, since the price of butter has gone up a dollar a pound this year, Landa Lakes has to bring the Indian back. <laughs> Come on, liberals, she's an Indian, she's in a field. Just pretend she wants your vote for more gambling. <laughs> New rule, the parents who are always telling me that I should have kids have to explain why 80% of horror movies are children are the devil. Seriously, I feel pretty good about my decision because apparently few stories resonate with audiences more than this kid's behavior is so fucked up he must be the child of Satan and a dog. <laughs> and finally, new rule of Halloween is too much for your fragile sensibilities and you're worried about seeing someone wearing something that's on the forbidden costume list. <laughs> Just stay the fuck home. <laughs> Every year we go through this bullshit. Lists of costumes you better not wear lest the night of irreverent dress-up spiral into something that resembles fun. <laughs> Here's an idea, clickbait websites. I won't tell you how to harvest and sell my personal data, and you don't tell me what I can wear on Halloween. Because... Halloween is supposed to be outrageous. It's a festival of the sacrilegious and a celebration of the grotesque, from zombies to ghouls to bobbing for apples and other people's saliva. <laughs> Yet, every year, there's a new list of offensive things we shouldn't do on the day that's all about being offensive. You know what I want to cancel? November 1st, All Scolds Day. When the good people announce which costumes the bad people wore. BuzzFeed, I mean Buzzkill. <laughs> has a list of 23 costumes they're literally begging you not to wear. Of course, this year, the number one no-no is serial killer, cannibal, and Netflix sensation Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> eBay has already banned selling it because otherwise it would be impossible to find a blonde wig and aviator glasses. <laughs> Simone Biles tweeted, put the Jeffrey Dahmer costumes back in the closet. We ain't having it. Who's we? What's with the we? Who died and made you the great pumpkin? I'm so tired of a handful of emotional hemophiliacs on social media telling us what we can't do on Halloween. And by the way, please put drugs in my candy.
Let's listen to these other verboten costumes on stupid lists this year, including Queen Elizabeth, because it's too soon. <laughs> yes, 96, practically an ingenue. <laughs> of course, don't even think about characters outside of your race. And no, no genies, because genies were slaves. Okay. No sexy schoolgirls, no playboy bunnies, no celebrities accused of pedophilia, including Elvis. You can't dress up as Elvis? That's an entire industry. (laughs) No zombie versions of deceased celebrities. (laughs) Well, there goes my zombie Angela Lansbury idea. No, uh, no unhoused person. What we used to call a hobo, the default costume of every kid in history. No one with an eating disorder, so goodbye skeletons. And no transphobic costumes, because if kids want to see drag queens, they can go to story hour. Also... Listen to this. No Putin. No Trump. No anything related to the Will Smith Oscars slap. No Johnny Depp. And of course, Amber Heard is out. No shit. And nothing related to vaccines or COVID or monkeypox. So have fun, kids, and let your imagination soar. Can I tell you something, kids? These are all great costumes. Yeah. Yeah, listen. Listen to me. I'm your last connection to fun. You should wear all of them. In fact, combine them if you want. Have the queen shit in Johnny's bed. Have Will Smith smacking a hobo. Kevin Spacey hitting on a mariachi band. (laughs) Jeffrey Dahmer is the perfect Halloween costume. What is scarier than a guy who fucks you, kills you, and eats you? Not necessarily in that order. (laughs) For fuck's sake, it's Halloween, which is not just a fun holiday. It's a necessary psychic release. Yes, society is going back thousands of years. Knew that you had to have some release valve on the calendar to flirt with the macabre and let the demons out to role-play so they wouldn't come out later for real. Mexico has Day of the Dead. Japan has Oban. Haitians have Fed G'day. It's not a coincidence that Carnival comes right before Lent and Halloween right before All Saints Day, much the way getting blown at a bachelor party comes before the wedding. (laughs) You know... I find it so interesting. You would think that a Handmaid's Tale costume would be acceptable since it derives from a completely woke-approved show that condemns the patriarchy. No. Buzzkill says no Handmaid's Tale costume either because it hits a little too close to home right now. (laughs) Okay, this is the life philosophy of zillennials. Things that are interesting might also contain something which could cause a moment of discomfort, so ban it all. 
It's not your fault, kids. Your parents ruined you by overprotecting you, and now you're these assholes. <laughs> and that is the craziest part of all this. Being irreverent, unclenched, and playful should be the province of the young, but it's not. Boomers are supposed to be the get-off-my-lawn crowd, but when someone in a problematic costume shows up at your door, it's literally Gen Z telling them to get off my lawn. (laughs) Except it's not even your lawn because you live at your parents' house. (laughs) So, I thought... What better costume to wear this year than the most ridiculous one I could think of? You. This year, I'm going as an uber-woke, overly anxious, perpetually offended 20-something. Would you like to see what I have for this costume? Okay. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Okay. First of all, I have my Fuck the Patriarchy T-shirt. Oh, yes. And then I have a check from the Patriarchy to pay my car insurance. (laughs) Okay, I've got my, uh, my nose ring. My, I know, uh, my vape pen. I've got my cloth surgical mask, my surgical mask, my N95 mask, and my face shield. <clears throat> then after I leave the house, I have my clonopin to take the edge off, my Adderall to put it back on. I have my participation trophy, my cat ear headphones to listen to sad music, the stick that goes up my ash, and the leash for my support animal. And just in case anyone still doesn't get what I'm all about, I have a wet blanket. All right. Thank you very much. That's our show. I'll be at the Hulu Theater in New York, November 12th. The Mirage in Vegas, November 25th and 26th. The Maui Cultural Center, December 30th, and at the Waikiki, New Year's Eve. Thank you very much, Jillian said, Yuval Harari, and Clinton Tarantino. Join us now on Overtime on YouTube. Thank you, folks. Join new episodes of Real Time with Bill Maher every Friday night at 10, or watch him anytime on HBO On Demand. For more information, log on to HBO.com.